Welcome to the Girl Gang Craft Podcast, where we dive in deep to all things business, wellness, creativity, and activism for artists and entrepreneurs. We talk with impactful, female-driven companies and founders for an inside look at the entrepreneurial experience, where you'll come away with tangible steps to elevate your business. Are you ready? I'm your host, Phoebe Sherman, founder of Girl Gang Craft, artist and designer and marketing obsessed. We're here to learn together how to expand our revenue, implement new organizational techniques, and cultivate best business practices as we work towards creating a life doing what we love. Let's get started. Hey, creatives. Before I introduce our guest today, I want to take the time to talk about our latest GGC offering, Level Up Academy. Woohoo! It's as exciting as it sounds. I'm so happy it's here. So CARD is open to enroll now. Level Up Academy is a six-week program hosted by yours truly, me, GGC founder, Phoebe Sherman, designed to create community and give you the tools you need to take your biz to the next level. This course is good for anyone who is just starting out and business veterans who want to tighten up content, expand audience, create multiple revenue streams, and make lasting friendships. So this course is for artists, makers, service-based businesses, yoga teachers, healers, entrepreneurs, photographers, graphic designers, coaches, all of you. I mean, have you been feeling low? Have you been feeling isolated? I really for sure have. I miss you all. I miss in real life events. These panels and happy hours and classes have been giving me life but I'm ready to dive a little deeper and get to know you all better. I'm ready to make some new creative friends who I can commiserate with, who I can run something by, like, do you like this? What do you think of this? I want to create community with real entrepreneurs who get it and can support each other. So if you've taken our summer school classes, this course can still be for you. We will cover topics like Instagram strategy, curating and serving your audience, cultivating your elevator pitch, creating work-life integration, email marketing, organizational skills, collaborations, wholesale and brand partnerships, copy and voice, video, and showing up. Plus, we'll leave space for whatever topics you may want to explore together because as we know, in 2020, anything can come up. So we want to be able to talk about whatever comes up. So we want this academy to give you the tools you need, plus lasting friendships who will continue to be your support team. So there will be office hours. There will be study groups. There will be a private Facebook group where you can connect and get feedback where you can learn and grow together. The thing that makes this course so dynamic and exciting and different than, you know, the summer school classes is that we leave space for implementation. So in the other classes, we gather together but you are all mostly on your own to take those tools and apply them to your business. So in the Level Up Academy, there will be homework, but don't worry, no grades here. But the offer is on the table for you to take what you learn one week and bring it back to class the next week. We will go over it together in small groups and learn from each other. So not only will you get the info you need to succeed, but you will actually take the steps to bring your biz to the next level and get feedback from me and your community. Plus there is an option for one-on-one coaching with me at unbelievable prices. So we will be meeting Mondays at 5 30 PM for an hour and a half. The first class is October 5th. So all classes will be recorded and available in the Facebook group. So let's break it down for the first 10 people to sign up the price all six weeks, plus the Facebook group and the office hours is one 97. That's it. After that, the price goes up to $257. You can also add on one-on-one coaching with me for two 30-minute calls or one-hour call at $100 or two one-hour calls at $175. And this is really unheard of, you guys, because my coaching sessions are normally $250 an hour. We also have five scholarship spots, so you can apply for that at bit.ly slash levelupscholarship, all lowercase, and you want to get that in by September 20th. So are you ready to join? You can sign up at girlgangcraft.com slash level up. Can't wait to see you in the academy. Hello, Girl Gang Craft community. Really excited today for our guest, Adrian L. Wiley. She's the founder and lead designer for Frolic Jewelry. 
she launched Frolic in 2004 from a desire to create a collection of jewelry that was vintage-inspired but contemporary and effortlessly chic for women of all ages. Adrienne initially learned to make jewelry as a hobby at age 15, but rekindled her interest years later after taking a class at a local bead store. In the beginning, she made her designs at the kitchen table and sold them to friends and family. Six months after launching the line, Wiley decided to leave her job at a Fortune 500 company to pursue frolic jewelry full-time. She spent the first year traveling around the country, participating in shopping events, and searching for premier retail locations to carry the line. Frolic jewelry is handcrafted by skilled artisans in Wiley's San Francisco design studio. The line garners the attention of publications such as WWD, Lucky, Marie Claire, In Touch, SF Chronicle, and more. Celebs also love the line. Hollywood A-listers, including Chelsea Handler, Rachel Zoe, Mariah Carey, and Serena Williams have been spotted wearing frolic. Adrian is also the owner of Covet, a jewelry and gift boutique opened in 2009 in SF's inner Richmond neighborhood. Most recently, Wiley wrote Adventures in Wholesale, a book dedicated to helping emerging designers navigate what they'll encounter while building a wholesale business. Hi, Adrian. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Thanks for being here. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. Excited to dig in and hear all about frolic jewelry. So you said you started as a hobby at age 15. How did you get into it to begin with? So I took my first jewelry making class at a museum in my hometown. I'm originally from a small town in Tennessee, um, Chattanooga, Tennessee. And so I took a little jewelry sort of metal smithing class there and fell in love with it. And then sort of, I mean, I was 15, so I did it, forgot about it. And then years later, I was working at a corporate job. I was in working at an insurance company and I lived down the street from a bead store. And so I started taking classes there and sort of rekindled my love for jewelry making. And love so, it. And yeah. then so... Yeah, continue. How did it become Frolic Jewelry? So it was really funny because I just wanted a creative outlet from my corporate job, like my cubicle. So I was processing accounts for insurance, which is as boring as it sounds. And my job was kind of like, (laughs) if you've seen the movie Office Space, a friend of mine gave me like a red swing line stapler for Christmas one year. (laughs) And my boss was kind of like the boss in Office Space. It was a lot. So I just need some sort of outlet. So I started making all this jewelry and I made more than I could ever wear or give as gifts. So I was like, maybe I should sell this to my coworkers. So my little cubicle, like up top where you keep files, I put necklace boards and then I sort of had a friend help me come up with the logo, made a little website. And so I started selling to people at my job at lunch hour. And so after I had done that for maybe a couple of months. Then one of them actually came up to me and said, this jewelry is really cute. Like you should sell it to stores. And I had no idea. I was like, hmm, wonder how I do that. So I started going on my lunch hour and taking jewelry samples to different stores that weren't too far away from my office. And so I started out on consignment. And once I had a decent amount of accounts, then I started kind of going further afield and selling to other places. And I'm like, this could actually be my real job if I could focus on it all the time instead of my lunch hour. So for six months, I saved up every penny. I would go to the mall or whatever. I'd see a shirt and I'd be like, do you want to wear it to your crappy job? Put that shirt back and save that money. So I did that for six whole months and then I left my job and I basically bought up, I didn't know when I'd be able to afford supplies again. So I bought up a ton of beads and everything and like printed a ton of business cards, bought mailer packs. I didn't know when I would make any money actually. So I just hoarded everything. And then I remember telling my coworkers, I sent an email from my little Hotmail account, which was the thing to have back then. And I was like, either you guys will see me in in style or either I'll be folding khakis at the gap. Either way, today's my last day here. <laughs> So that's kind of how I started. Love that. Yeah. And from there, it was straight to the kitchen table to try and make it into a business. Love it. So how did that transition go for you? Because that sort of seems like a lot of our community is either sort of still working their other job and doing their passion project on the side. And then a lot of them have, you know, just left their other job or 
it's been forced to leave during shelter in place. Well, exactly. And so there's, there's, yeah. So there's, you know, they're starting with the seedling of the business and they're, they're in it. Can you talk a little bit about like that beginning? As soon as you left, as soon as you left your corporate job, what was that beginning state like? How did you make it work? So, yeah. So my first thing was I was really excited because I hated that job so much. And then I had a moment of freaking out. Like, what did I just do? And then after a couple of days of that, kind of that roller coaster, then I'm like, okay, I got to get out here and go to stores, which again, I know not all of this applies right now because of the situation that we're in, you know, but this was my story at the time. And I was able to just kind of pound the pavement and go to stores and show them the collection and try to get orders that way. Also being, I would say that time period, a lot more store owners were in their stores I know that sounds funny to say, but Mm. I feel like now store owners kind of diversify, right? Like they might also be a blogger. So they're out shooting something or they might have another business. Like maybe you have a shop, but you also own a restaurant or kind of people kind of diversify things a little more. So it's a lot less likely that you'll walk into a small shop and the owner will just be sitting there doing nothing. And I must say, honestly, and luckily that was the case a lot of the time back in 2005, you know? So I got a lot of shops that way, but I also started thinking creatively to make ends meet. So I did a lot of jewelry classes, which I don't love teaching, but I did a lot of jewelry classes to kind of make ends meet in the beginning. So I would just say, don't be afraid to kind of think out of the box and get creative to make ends meet, you know, in those lean startup times. Yeah, absolutely. And even right now too, it makes so so much sense to teach things, right? Diversifying your... And revenue even, streams. Yeah. Even if you can't do it in person, I mean, people are doing a lot of online classes, which are very popular because just like, you know, as a designer, you're stuck at home. So are people that want to learn how to do new things. Yeah, absolutely. So it seems like you were sort of focusing on more of the wholesale aspect than like direct to consumer. Exactly. At that point, I was definitely Initially. focused on wholesale. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So then, then what happened? So how did you start to scale and expand Frolic? Yeah. Talk about the middle. Talk about the middle of that. So basically I did not know trade shows existed. Like I had no idea. So I figured that I just had to pound the heck out of the pavement. So I got to 150 store accounts on my own, just driving around. So every vacation. That's amazing. Yeah. Every vacation I would take the jewelry with me. Every time I, I would go stay on friends' couches, the South is kind of close together. So I was in Atlanta at the time and I would say, okay, I'm visiting a friend in Nashville or someone in Memphis or North Carolina. And I would just take the jewelry and while my friends were at work during the day, I would just canvas stores. So after, I guess, my 150th account, which is really funny, it was my, actually, one of my really good friends was a shop owner in Chattanooga in my hometown. And so I was at home visiting my parents and I was talking to her about the business And I said, you know, this is really exhausting. Like, I don't know how you grow beyond just your region if you have to drive around all these stores. How does anyone do this? (laughs) Because it takes all my time. So she was like, you know, there are trade shows for that. I actually go to them and that's where I buy clothes and jewelry and things like that for the store. In addition to people coming in and, you know, being reps and selling me things in the shop, the trade show is a really great way to kind of get some enhanced visibility. So I signed up for my first trade show and it was horrendous and it was a lot of money. So I was super discouraged, but I kind of did more research about trade shows and found out there are different trade shows for different things. And some shows might be a fit for kind of higher end jewelry, whereas others may not. Also trade shows have sections, which is super important. And the section you're in can literally make or break your show. Because if you're in the handmade section, you're in a place where people appreciate the artisan craft, you know, the craftsmanship of whatever you're making versus in general gift, people are wanting things, you know, that are five and six dollars. So it's sort of being where people expect to find your type of goods, which I didn't know going in. I kind of just fell for the sales pitch of the show and went with the booth that was least expensive, whereas being in that handmade section, you actually have to be juried in and it costs more. And there are different booth requirements to kind of enhance the way the booth looks, which were kind of beyond my budget at the time. But had I known, I would have just gone for it because it would have made for a better show experience. 
So actually, after that bad experience, I tried the show again and was in the correct section, and it was amazing. So from then on, I kind of kept doing the shows and built up my relationships to where I was doing five Atlanta shows a year, five New York accessories the show a year, two Dallas gift, two Atlanta gift, and three additional shows I'm missing in there somewhere because at a point I was doing 17 trade shows a year and it was crazy and I burnt myself out. That's a lot. <laughs> but- That's a lot. Exactly. And so you weren't doing any sort of direct cons- to consumer craft fairs at, at that point, time, just all trade well, shows. Around Christmas, I still would because that was okay. it was kind of perfect timing because once, as far as shipping to stores, you know, everyone kind of wants their stuff like November 1st so they can get it in there, merchandise it, promote it, and sell through it for Christmas. Whereas the craft shows and things like that kind of start mid-November and go into, you know, through the holidays. So it was kind of perfect timing. As soon as things calmed down and I got the majority of my holiday wholesale orders out, then I could focus on selling my samples at the retail events. Totally. And how was your like online sales at at that point as well? My online sales were pretty much non-existent. I will say that I didn't start focusing on online until the store when I kind of needed to get brand recognition. And I mean, I feel like the brand recognition came from the trade shows for me in the beginning and it built on word of mouth. And then like some, a shop owner would see it in another shop and then they just email me. So the website for me was more of just a kind of a marketing presence, but if they already visited, they could flip through some designs and then they could email me about a line sheet. So my main focus was having an amazing line sheet and a quick and easy way for them to order, you know, but I didn't really focus on having pictures of the jewelry on a person or even having that many styles for sale on the website. It was just more of, here's a sampling of what I do, email for a line sheet to order for your store. So when I launched the Covet later, that's when I focused on the website. It's so interesting because everyone's journey is so different. Like I actually don't hear that much. Like a lot of our community is way more direct to consumer and they sort of are, you know, doing the craft fairs and their online sales first, and then they're starting to expand the wholesale line. So I think, I think it's so cool how that there's just, you know, a different way for everyone to explore their business and there's no right or wrong answer. There's no right or wrong way. Exactly. And I mean, my path was really different too, because of the time. So, I mean, in 2005, 2006, online wasn't even that big, you know? So it was more focused on how many people can I get in front of events or, you know, through shops or trade shows or, you know, kind of face-to-face interactions versus online. But I will say that online started to help my business more and more as the years progressed. And I had to kind of work on increasing that presence, even on the wholesale side, I've had to, you know take some steps to make it a little bit more user-friendly for people to place orders and things like that. Totally. Okay. And then let's talk about this sort of PR strategy that you may have had. How how did you get to be in these publications, these amazing publications like Marie Claire and SF Chronicle? And how did you get your jewelry in front of these A-listers? So I will say, I mean, I wish I could say it was like amazing PR. I actually had some PR fails because At that point in time, PR companies were really huge. I don't know how much they are for how much they're targeting small businesses now, but at trade shows, you would get hit up endlessly by all these different PR companies like fashion PR that wanted to represent you. So of course I got wooed by a company out of New York that also had some really huge brands that I kind of aspired to, like Rebecca Minkoff and things like that. So of course, I'm like scraping together like all my coins to afford this. But what I didn't know is that if you're not a Rebecca Minkoff or an Alexis Batar, one of those really huge brands, they also need these smaller accounts to help them pay the bills because I mean, it's still three or $4,000 a month for the retainer for these people. But those smaller brands end up getting kicked over to the interns. And then kind of getting less care and attention. But I didn't know that because, you know, you just kind of have stars in your eyes and you're like, they want me. I'm so excited, you know? So I had some experiences like that. And I wish I could say that some of the good press at least came out of that, but it did not. 
most of the good press was actually either a stylist or something walking the trade show. That's how Rachel Zoe found me. It was one of her people for her. I don't think she was doing the style box at the time, but she was doing the Rachel Zoe list that was really, you know, highly regarded. And they were looking around for brands to feature in that. And that's how they came across me was at, I believe it was New York Gift. And then the same with Mariah Carey. I was, I had a butterfly necklace at the time and she loves butterflies. And one of her stylists was walking around one of the trade shows. It was probably another New York show or maybe Vegas. Same with Serena. And then Chelsea was actually, a friend of mine had been supplying Chelsea stylists with items for a long time. And she knew how much I love Chelsea Handler. So she actually, I was like, send me some jewelry and I'll send it along with my things that I'm sending. And that's how that happened. And then she really liked it and requested more items. That's super cool. I mean, that's so fun. It's so cool to see your items on people who are so in the public eye. It is. It is. And I think honestly, it's a little bit more, it's definitely more competitive now, but it's a lot more accessible than it was then. At that point, I feel like you had to like send the press, you know, the entire press kit and kind of you had this really formal way of reaching out, which I think now, I mean, I hear people saying, oh, you know, I DM'd the assistant editor at Style and sent her some pictures and she liked them. Then she followed me on Instagram. So I think there's a cool way through social media now and just it makes those powers that be and like the people that determine what's cool kind of a lot more accessible to all of us. So you can reach out or they can just organically find you through social media. So you would you would give the advice that there's no harm in reaching out to some of these people? I don't think so. Actually, a really cool tip that I like to share is a friend of mine, Amy Flurry, who used to be an editor. I want to say she used to be an editor for maybe Lucky Magazine when that was around. But she actually came up with this really cool book called Recipe for Press. And she tells you how to pitch yourself. And it's really great, easy advice. And she also sells a list. And she updates it every six months. And I think it's over 200 editors for all these different publications, online and print. And it gives you all of their contact, like their LinkedIn, their email, their social media accounts, everything. And I don't know how she gets this holy grail of information, but she gets it all and she keeps it very up to date. Because a lot of editors and people like that are constantly changing and moving around in that industry. So just because you have a contact for in style in January, as of August, that might be a new person. So she does a great job of keeping it up to date. And I want to say getting her list is like, I think it's 100 bucks or something. It's pretty affordable for all the information you're getting. I'm actually going to order What was it. it called again? It's Recipe for Press is how you can Google it. And then I forgot what she calls the list, but recipe for press is the book and it'll take you to her website. And then it'll say you can download the latest list of contacts. And I've had great success with it before. That's so, so cool. That's yeah, good advice. exactly. Yeah. Give it okay. a try. I'm going to do it again because it was successful for me in the past. That's awesome. And do you think that sort of the ROI is back, like is there when your stuff's featured in a publication or featured on an A-lister? Do you get an influx of orders? Do you see that come back to you? I wish I could say I did, but honestly, I don't. I mean, it feels good to see it. Don't get me wrong. It feels great to see it, but you don't really get a huge influx. I don't know if it depends on who the person is or kind of the age demographic or different things, but I actually have friends who work with a lot of influencers on Instagram and I'll be so excited. My friend does belts and she'll get a belt on like, you know, Emma Watson or something like something really amazing that I'm so excited for. And she's like, yeah, I got no sales from that. So I don't know. Interesting. But it's great to build your portfolio. And if you can pitch it, that's why I would say, I mean, of course, I wouldn't recommend investing in hiring someone. But if you can kind of get a hold of a list for a pretty nominal cost and do a little pitching on your own and get some good press to use, you know, on your website or you know, in your line sheet. I think that's helpful, you know, and you kind of never know who sees it and it might come back around to being something good for your business. It just might not be a direct like whoosh of sales. Absolutely. And it's so hard to see the metrics on that anyways, I guess. It's so hard. Yeah. Even just running ads, you know, I mean, if you run an Instagram ad or something like that, you're kind of like, no one clicked through on this but I did get four orders this week, you know? So it's kind of things that you, you might get orders from a place or city that you 
never get orders from. So then you sort of start to question, was that because of an ad or because of something you did? But you can't really trace it exactly. Totally. We try our best. I mean, I personally love the metrics and the analytics and I try my best to trace things and, you know, some of it's just untraceable. Exactly. <laughs> so let's talk about Covet. So how did how did Covet come to be? What, what made you decide to open up a boutique? So it's really funny. I call myself an accidental retailer still to this day. I say that because I actually had a little studio in the mission because I was just tired of working from home. So it was called Active Space and it's like Mission and Treat Street. And they it was a sort of converted warehouse that had a bunch of little small sort of 10 by 10 almost artist studios. So I rented one of those. And I was told when I first signed the little lease that they would do open studios once a month. And I said, okay, well, that's great. Cause then I'll make it kind of cute in here and put some shelves and I can at least sell enough jewelry to pay this rent, which is perfect. That's all I wanted was a space they could pay for itself and I could make stuff and not be at home. So a few months passed and I realized that the open studios never actually materialized. I think that was something they aspired to, but not something that they had in the works at the moment. So I started looking for, I think I only signed for six months with them. So at that point, I started kind of just keeping my eyes peeled for a different space. And at the time, we had only moved to San Francisco seven or eight months before that. So I didn't really know the city all that well. So it was really funny. I was picking my husband up from the airport and we were living, we still live over near the Panhandle area, sort of near Haight and Golden Gate Park. And if you know San Francisco at all, I was driving to the airport, which is the complete opposite direction of the neighborhood my shop is now in, which is called the Inner Richmond. So I got turned around going to the airport, somehow ended up in the Inner Richmond. And I was like, oh, this is really cute. I'll have to come back over here. So I ended up seeing the vacant space and it was intriguing because it was split level and it was right on a corner. And the split level would enable me to kind of sell things downstairs and then I would have my little studio upstairs. And it was only up about five or six stairs. So you could look down and see if anyone came in, you know, to shop. So I wrote down the phone number and I was like, okay, I got to get to the airport, but I'm going to investigate that later. So I ended up calling about the space and about a week later I had it because this was the end of 2008, I guess, when I signed the lease. So the economy was not at its best. And I think they were just looking for someone to fill the space. So that was nice because I really didn't have a track record for being a retailer or, you know, having commercial leases or anything like that. So I signed for the space and moved in. And I would say I was there for maybe a month and a half, two months tops. And I was just, I didn't have hours. The door would be open if I was there. It would be closed if I wasn't. It was 100% meant to be just a little studio space that had a little shop at the bottom. So about a couple months into it, I got a call from the Chronicle and they wanted to do an article on me for the front page of the style section. And so I did that. And then maybe that's cool. It was really <laughs> exciting. And I did that. And maybe I guess three or four days later, I came to the store and I parked and I remember walking and I'm like, what is this line for? I was like, oh, is the bakery doing something interesting? Hmm, okay. So I'm walking to the store and then I realized the line is like stopping at my door. And I'm like, oh. And then I didn't even know the article had come out. And then I saw people holding the page of the paper in their hand in the line. And I'm like, oh, that came out today. Wow, this is exciting. So opened the door, had like our record week that week. And then from then on, I guess it just kind of built the buzz for the store because it actually sort of became a store. So every day I would have people and every day I couldn't get my studio work done. <laughs> so eventually, though this was awesome, it made me have to think totally out of the box because I was just going to have a little studio that didn't really have hours. So I'm like, I need to actually like get some real fixtures. I need to price things. I need to hire someone to help me and make some hours. So I kind of scrambled to do all those things. And then a few months after that, I ended up moving out of the space because I wanted to expand the upstairs to be more store because it wasn't really functioning as a studio because it was too busy, which was an excellent problem to have. So yeah, I ended up turning it into a full-on store. And that is how Covet became a shop instead of a studio. 
And that was 11 years ago. And you're still, you're in that same space. Mm -hmm. That's so exciting. Yeah, it's really exciting. So so I say I was definitely an accidental retailer. It's hilarious because I didn't even want a shop because I knew so many people that had shops. A lot of my friends were shop owners, you know, through selling the jewelry and, you know, going and meeting people. And they all seemed really bored. In their shops, they're like, oh, I wish we could go have lunch with you, but we're stuck in here today, all day. <laughs> so I kind of had this attitude of like, oh, I don't want that. That seems very, like, you seem kind of trapped. I'm just going to stay, you know, repping my own jewelry and being able to, like, go around and do what I want to do. So it was just, it's really funny that I ended up having a shop. And I love it, but it wasn't, like, the path I had intended. That's so funny. And so now you carry other brands in there as well. I do. So usually it's only my jewelry, unless it's some jewelry I fall in love with when I'm traveling or something. Like most recently I had these really awesome earrings. They were, they're porcelain and they're from, they're from Copenhagen. And I found them when we were there on vacation and there are these awesome little studs that have these gorgeous porcelain ear jackets on them. So if it's really, really different from something I do and just really unique then I'll bring it into the shop as far as jewelry. But mostly I carry sweatshirts, bags, pouches, art, other gift items, notebooks, things like that from other designers. And I try and make sure that they're, I carry a good amount of local designers, but I also really like to curate independent designers from my travels, which hopefully can resume one day. (laughs) So what have been some challenges about owning a boutique? I would say, honestly, the most challenging thing for me is how you were saying like you love the metrics and things like that. I wish I was a little more like that because the website is a struggle for me. And being that we're in an increasingly online world, you know, keeping the store fresh and making sure that online equally reflects, you know, sort of the aesthetic of the shop and what's in the shop is always a struggle for me to find that balance and to kind of figure out how to grow the online presence to direct traffic to the store, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Are you thinking about like redoing the website or anything or? I'm working on it right now. I'm actually streamlining it because I feel like we get products into the store really often. And even now that we're not getting things quite as often, like products from other designers, we're still making jewelry all the time and we're making new designs. So we're shooting and making and adding. And then I turn around and realize we have like 400 necklaces on the site or something ridiculous, you know? And I feel like that just gets overwhelming to the consumer. And then they sort of get decision paralysis and then end up just not making a purchase at all. So we're really working to curate the website better and do SEO and other things to kind of help increase the traffic. So that's where I'm at right now. Totally. Isn't there so much to do as a business owner? (laughs) There is so, so much to do. Oh my gosh. All the time. (laughs) All the time. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that. Okay. Well, so Covet is one of three Black-owned boutiques in San Francisco. That's awesome. Well, it's also not awesome because there should be more than three. (laughs) So what have been some of the challenges of being a Black woman in a primarily white sphere? So honestly, it hasn't been all that challenging. I would say the main thing is that no one ever thinks I own the store. That would be my number one kind of annoyance. Like at one point, I actually sort of not got into an argument, but like I was adamantly telling this woman that I own the store and she was kind of like, well, if you don't want to let me speak to the manager or the owner, then I guess I'll just have to email or call. Like, and you will get my same voice because it is me. So, I mean, I've had a couple of incidences like that. And then a few others where, you know, someone has thought that I'm the cleaning person or the painter or the gardener, you know, so the assumption is just kind of made, but I mean, I don't know. I do do those things. So if you see me painting, then maybe I am the painter. So I don't know. As a small business owner, I think a lot of it is that people also don't understand how many hats small business people wear. So they think, oh, this person's out here like with this pile of dirt and this planter. Surely they're not the owner, you know? So I don't really know. I don't want to jump to conclusions. I'm not sure how much of it is that versus, you know, that they just don't expect to see a black owned shop. Which I do get some surprise when I tell people. They're like, oh, 
wow, you know, because it's kind of a, it means definitely a novel thing in San Francisco. Yeah, that's outrageous. What are the two other boutiques? So Morgan owns the Golden Hour, which is a vintage store. And then okay. there is a beauty shop. And I am I don't know how to pronounce it. It's M-A-H-A-B-U-Y, Mahui. I'm not sure. Don't let me butcher that. But it's a very cute okay. shop. And <laughs> she sells all sorts of awesome beauty products. Right now, I think she's operating, operating on Neighborhood which is a platform owned by FAIR, a retail shopping platform, because she has to be closed because I think she also offers like nail services and things like that. But she is located in Noe Valley. Interesting. I mean, that's just crazy to me that there's only three, three black-owned boutiques in all of San Francisco. That's, I mean... I know. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure boutiques are also lowering... I think we're probably losing a lot of boutiques right now, unfortunately. Unfortunate. I know. Yeah. I mean... I'm hoping that maybe some of the government assistance options like, you know, the PPP and, you know, different loan options like the EIDL loan are really going to help people to hang on until it turns around. So, I mean, even if it helps people kind of hang on till holiday season, right, that would be really helpful because then you get that cash infusion, which I don't think it'll be as busy as usual, but holiday will still be helpful. Yeah. Well, let's talk about what's your plan moving forward. You just opened this week. Yeah, so it's been going good. And we abbreviated our hours, which has been extremely helpful. So we started opening an hour earlier because I feel like people get out and about early right now. Like when I kind of observed the foot traffic as I was getting the store ready to reopen, I was kind of taking notes to just see when people were out. And it seems like people get out way earlier and then they go in way earlier. Whereas I used to see a lot of foot traffic around between three and six. It gets really light after three, four o'clock at the latest. And so what sort of changes have you made at the boutique to move forward with like social distance protocols and things like that? So the store is small. So the number one thing I did was changed around the actual setup and physically changed out fixtures. So I love all things kind of vintage and whimsical. So I had all these really cool little vintage tables and things like that set up, but they take up a lot of space. And it, the way that I was displaying the product, I could put more product out for display if I had just like a really cool, just simple glass shelving unit would let me have more product and create more space for people to get around. So I made our jewelry bar on a smaller table because we have a DIY jewelry bar with over 300 charms where you can pick your own pieces and we put it together for you. So I kind of condensed that and just put everything in smaller containers to fit on a much smaller table, put in like just simple glass shelving units and open the space up a lot more. So I think we're allowed to have six people in the store at a time, including the person that's working because you kind of measure out, you know, social distance so everyone can have their six feet. So that helped out a lot with space. And then also we have everyone take a pump of hand sanitizer on the way in. And of course, mask is required. And then we're wiping things down, you know, really often. So that's kind of, those are the precautions that we're taking. Okay. Well, that's so exciting that you get to be open again. So congrats. Yeah, it is really exciting. It's nice to be back. I love my little neighborhood. Okay, switching gears a little bit. So you have spoken at conferences like Dear Handmade Life and SF Made. How did these speaking gigs come to be? And what are some things you tell yourself before you speak? I know from personal experience, I often have a bit of imposter syndrome when I'm talking to people about things. Do you ever feel like that? And if so, how do you overcome that experience? So I would say the number one thing as far as getting the speaking gigs is not to be afraid to pitch yourself. I kind of was nervous and, you know, I wasn't sure that I know there are people that are obviously a lot more experienced speakers than me, right? So I would look at the speakers that were attending an event and get kind of intimidated and maybe say, oh, well, it's not for me. I'm not ready yet. But recently, as of last year, Alt Summit, which is a pretty big conference, if you've heard of that one, I actually pitched myself for that and got chosen. So I was really, really excited. That was kind of the biggest conference that I had spoken at. And that gave me the confidence to say, okay, well, at least try, right? The worst that someone can do is say, you're not a good fit and no harm, no foul. You're just on to the next thing. But if if you don't pitch yourself, then no one knows you exist or what you have to offer. Absolutely. I also believe that 
Wait, what's your sign? Can I ask you that? (laughs) (laughs) I'm a Libra. You're a Libra. Okay, for sure. (laughs) Okay, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm all about the pitching thing. And I think sometimes, I think specifically, you know, as women and as people, I don't know, we can always sit and say someone's more experienced than us or, you know, more of an expert in that field. But if you don't try exactly, the worst thing can happen. First thing that's going to happen is someone's going to say no. Exactly. But if you yeah. if you don't ask, they might not find you. <laughs> yeah, because there's a lot of people out there. So yeah, just at least put yourself front and center and let them know that you're interested, you know. And I've gotten a lot of feedback like, hey, we're actually, we're filled up for this year, but we'll keep you on the list for next year. So then now I get to pitch early and in a timely manner for a conference that I would have just kept missing out on. Absolutely. And what are your like go-to topics that you speak about at these conferences? So I've talked about making money moves in your business, which is kind of figuring out ways to diversify your income streams so that you're not just dependent on one area of your business, kind of getting creative with that. Mm -hmm. And then quitting your day job, kind of steps, not telling anyone to quit their day job. I would never do that because I would feel awful if if, (laughs) if it didn't work out. But I just kind of talk about a lot of people don't know how to prepare for that step even. So I just talk about how to prepare yourself in a way that you're ready to take that step when it is time. Because a lot of people I feel like just dive in and then they're like, oh no, I didn't know about this or this, you know, and you don't really think about all the scenarios. So I talk about that. And what are a couple of those steps? So, I mean, I would just say coming up with a plan is one of them. Because even though you might be really excited about your business and, you know, you feel like you can't stay another minute at this job, which... I've been there and felt that way, but I actually forced myself for an additional six months to stay there and actually check everything off of my list. So I went, you know, I got my business license. I registered, you know, for my tax ID, all these things that actually could take time and money to kind of get organized. At least you're able to handle those costs without quitting your job and then being like, ah, shoot, now I have all these bills to pay. So just kind of coming up with a plan like that so that you're not stuck in a position where you can't grow your business that you just quit your job to pursue because you're kind of too bogged down with all these other steps. Absolutely. Okay. And then any other topics you talk about for the conference? Do you talk about wholesale? Because I know you wrote a whole book about it. Yeah. So (laughs) I talk about Wholesale 101. And in that one, I kind of explain, honestly, a lot of people that are just starting out on Etsy or, you know, different platforms. They don't even understand wholesale pricing versus retail pricing. And that's something that is extremely important because that can mean the difference between getting wholesale orders and not. So I actually go over pricing and kind of pulling together a cohesive collection and those kind of first steps. And then wholesale 102, I talk more about kind of more advanced details. But the pricing thing is one of my biggest topics of 101. That's kind of one of the biggest areas because a lot of people, even brands that I've wanted to carry for my shop from Etsy, like that nothing makes me sadder than when I reach out to someone and I'm like, oh my gosh, these ceramic trays are amazing. You know, they're $40 retail. How much are they wholesale? And they're like, oh, 34. I'm like, yeah, that's not going to work. And I mean, it's, I understand why they're saying that because on Etsy, they're selling it for the price that they need to sell it for to make money, right? Kind of the lowest possible price. When in actuality, if they actually were paying themselves for their time and everything like they should doing a proper pricing equation, maybe they're worth $80, you know, and then the wholesale is 40, which makes sense. So Absolutely. But yeah, there there are plenty of brands that I haven't been able to carry because they are scared at this point. They've built an Etsy following, you know, and they have tens of thousands of sales for these at $40. So of course, at that point, you pigeonholed yourself and you can't just jump to 80. So they have to actually turn down wholesale business because it doesn't make sense for them. Absolutely. Okay, well, so, you know, stores are starting to open up. But also, obviously, things are probably going to be a little bit slower. Like, what advice do you have for brands trying to maybe expand their wholesale line right now? Like, do you see any alternatives to brick and mortars? How do you sort of see this trend moving? I just think the number one thing is going to be flexibility. I know a lot of people, you know, you come up with 
wholesale minimums and you come up with, you know, case packs or whatever. And you're like, I'm sticking to these, like, there's no changing. There's no going back. I would say in these times to definitely be flexible with stores that might want to place smaller orders because we're all kind of in this together in this uncertainty. So for me, for example, like there are things that I'm ordering from designer friends of mine and I'm ordering them like six or seven at a time, you know, whereas normally I'd be like, give me 30 of those, you know, but I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if we're going to be forced into a second shutdown because these numbers aren't looking so great. I'm just not sure. So I don't, I kind of want to be prepared and not have a ton of inventory costs put into the store because I'm completely unsure of what's going to happen, you know? So I definitely think being flexible, diversifying your offerings could be really cool right now. I've seen a lot of, for example, on FAIR, I don't know if, if people are familiar with FAIR, but it's actually a wholesale platform where you can list your products and then they promote it to buyers and they give your buyers really excellent terms, which are net 60, which normally as a small business person, you wouldn't be able to float those orders. But FAIR goes ahead and pays you. Can you explain what next, net 60 is to our audience? Yeah. <laughs> so net 60 means you get paid after a 60-day period. And so normally that's not something that you would be able to float on your own. I'm sorry, not you get paid after a 60-day period. Sorry. It can mean that if someone's paying you net 60. In this case for FAIR, it means that as a consumer, let's say I'm ordering someone's candles on fair for my store, I wouldn't have to pay for those candles for 60 days. So the net just means like at a 60 day, it could be that you're paying as the buyer or you're getting paid as the seller. But in this particular instance, exactly, fair gives you two whole months as a buyer to have an item. And then if at any point during that two months, you don't sell through the item, you can send what's left back to FAIR and they pay for the shipping and everything, but the designer still gets paid 100% of the money after 30 days. I know that sounds confusing. And it also sounds too good to be true, but it's not. <laughs> yeah, FAIR has actually cool. so been- are you both a, yeah, do you, are you a buyer and a seller on FAIR then? I am both on FAIR and it works very well. I mean, it gives me a chance to try brands that I normally might be nervous about trying or try product offerings. Like most recently, this was before the shutdown, but I tried travel accessories, which actually did really good, like cute little sleep mask and passport covers and things like that, which normally I might not have forayed into that, you know, product offering, but with kind of a risk-free trial of it. I was able to give it a try and see what happened. And from that, I realized it does really well. And once people can leave their homes again, I might try it again when people are traveling. So I think it's really great for retailers because it gives you a chance to kind of expand your offerings. And especially in these uncertain times, it gives you a way to still keep bringing in fresh product and not outlay quite as much income. Also, as a seller, it gives you a chance to reach buyers and, I mean, sell them your product in a risk-free way, which you still get paid 100% of your order price, and then they still get the chance to try your product. So it's a win-win. Like when the product gets sent, to, sent back to FAIR, it doesn't come back to you as the seller or anything. It's FAIR keeps it and does these little flash sales with it. I don't really understand, but it works for them. But all that's important as a seller is you don't have to worry about it. You still get paid. Awesome. Yeah, we're on FAIR and we also like Bulletin Co. as well. Oh, exactly. It's the exact same format. How do you like Bulletin? Is it pretty good? Bulletin's great because it's, I mean, it's female focused. Their branding's awesome. And I think they do less of a percentage than FAIR. I think they're at 10 to 15 and FAIR is like 15 or 25 the first sale, right? And then 15% afterwards. Exactly. And the the co-founder of Bulletin is... Well, by the time this podcast premieres, <laughs> Ali will have been on one of our podcast episodes. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Just overall, I think those formats are amazing and are definitely going to contribute to the future of wholesale. Absolutely. And hopefully retailers continue to flourish or we find some maybe alternatives, like maybe some people are doing more like box subscriptions or curating baskets or things like that. Exactly. I'm seeing a I lot of that. It's well. great. Those are great ideas too. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, Adrian, this has been so helpful. You're so thoughtful and you have so many good, you know, tangible points to make. So thank you for that. Great. Well, thanks so much for having me. This has been fun. Yeah. Can you tell can you tell everyone where we can find you? So on Instagram, I'm at Coveted Frolic. So it's C-O-V-E-T-E-D dash frolic, F-R-O-L-I-C-K. Or you can visit the website, which is covetsf.com or shopfrolic.com with a K. Amazing, Adrian. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Hey, makers, brands, and artists. Do you like free marketing? Do you like lifting your friends up? Are you constantly sharing brands on your Instagram, sharing your favorite products, and spreading the word about local makers? Well, there's an app for that. We at GGC are all about lifting each other up. We're also about systems. We're also about karma. These are things that we love. And we found an app that combines all of these things. And it's based on something called karmic marketing. And guess what? This system is free. Yes, free. It's called AmpJar. This is how it works. You shout out AmpJar brands that you love on your Insta, in your emails, and on your after checkout page. So in return, you build up karma credits. These credits are good for people to share your brand. So for instance, you post about three brands you love on your Insta stories, then you will show up on the after checkout page automatically on brands you're matched with. Brands can shout you out on Instagram stories and emails as well. And it just spirals from there. It's like a pay it forward system. And here's the deal. The system is completely free if you shout out three brands a week. Free. Otherwise, you pay $22 a month. So you can just add this into your weekly tasks, shouting out three brands a week, easy peasy, in your emails, on your Instagram stories. Or if you like a more evergreen approach, that means you don't have to do the work, simply add the Amptar code into your after checkout page and if you make three sales that week, you are golden because that means that you're, you have shown a brand three times in the after checkout page. So after checkout page is great because your customers have already paid you. So you're not losing that sale or anything. And customers have their wallet out and are ready to still buy and support. So you can pick the brands that you match with. So you wouldn't be working with a brand that is too similar or a completely different vibe. You have control over who you match with. So yes, Ampjar free system to lift up your favorite brands. Or you can join for just 22 each month for more visibility. So head to bit.ly, so bit.ly slash ampjar, A-M-P-J-A-R. So bit.ly slash capital A-M-P-J-A-R, ampjar. And it looks like they're working on a little Girl Gang Craft badge so that you can make sure that you're shouting out other people from the Girl Gang Craft community. Thank you so much for listening to the Girl Gang Craft podcast. Head to girlgangcraft.com slash podcast for show notes and more. See you next time.